The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. Something happened to popular music in the 1960s. Modes of music that began as entertainment turned into art that entertains. That's the claim of our guests today, Mike Madison and Ernest Suarez, whose new book charts this territory, tracing its roots, detailing its features, and examining its consequences. It gives us a new way of understanding and talking about this change. Why are some song lyrics throwaway drivel and others are great poetry? But why can't we compare those lyrics to great poetry? Or can we? Where did this all begin and what does it mean for us today? Mike Madison and Ernest Suarez on Poetic Song Verse, blues-based popular music and poetry, today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I hope you're enjoying life this holiday season. Soak it up. The days are getting shorter as we march toward the solstice. But just because the light is less doesn't mean you have to go into hibernation. I myself hibernated a bit as I recovered from my COVID booster shot, which put me in bed under the covers for two days. But I'm coming out of it now and feeling fit as a fiddle. Speaking of fiddles, we have a good music episode for you today. It's kind of a part two to that episode we did years and years ago, back when Bob Dylan won the Nobel Prize for Literature. That was a controversial pick. And most of those arguments irritated me, frankly, because they were all fighting against straw men. You know where that term comes from, straw man? I didn't. I assumed it had something to do with scarecrows, maybe, a scarecrow army that wasn't real, something like that. It turns out that none other than Mr. Martin Luther may have invented the term, not the concept. The concept goes way back. Aristotle was already describing it, setting up an invisible opponent or making up an argument so you can easily refute it. He was all over that, of course. The great Grecian cataloger was on it. But it was Martin Luther who first put into print the idea of a man made of straw as an emblem of that practice. After he had criticized the church, the Roman Catholics attacked him back, and then Luther said, that's not what I said at all. He said, they set up a man of straw whom they may attack. It's a great metaphor when you dig down into it. Go ahead, use whatever weapons you want. I always picture swords. Personally, go slice and dice your way through that figure over there, that straw man you want to attack. The real deal is right here, untouched. You're not answering my argument because you're too busy swinging your saber at that pile of straw. That pile of straw in overalls, is how I picture it. You're wasting your time. The problem is... Arguing against a straw man often works, and then it feels like gaslighting, which is another phrase we'll explore another time. Great origins for that phrase, too. Okay, so what was our straw man, and what was the real deal when it came to the Bob Dylan winning the Nobel Prize arguments? I'll confess that my motivation for doing that podcast episode was my old partner in crime, Mike Palindrome. 
was red hot about it. He was furious, incensed. And I thought, well, we don't usually do hot takes here, literary hot takes, but this will be fun to let Mike rant and see where it leads us. So that's what we did in that Dylan episode. But even before we began, I saw the nuances to the argument. So let me give you the two sides, and I'll tell you why I didn't think either side was quite getting where we needed to get. Mike said, hey, we've got to draw some lines around literature. We can't just include everything. Paradigmatically, literature is an individual writing words, right? A writer who sits in a room making words do things, express, communicate, convey, represent, display, make us see, as Conrad might say, make us feel something. A novelist does that. A short story writer does that. A poet does that. Just a brain going to a hand that holds the pen or the fingertips that type the keys. Transmission by some medium to the eyes that read those words and the mind that absorbs them. That's the paradigm of literature. Nothing is added to those words, essentially. If you add paint and color, illustrations... Now you're talking about something that enhances literature. If you add music or moving images or actors or anything else, you're talking about add-ons to literature. And there have been Nobel Prizes with add-ons before, books that have had pictures included in them, although not a Nobel Prize for literature for illustrations, but you know what I mean. There have been speeches that were delivered with a voice, and most significantly, the thing that that gets at this question the the most directly, plays. Plays were performed with actors and sets and lots of other accompaniments. All add-ons to our paradigm of words on a page. And Mike would say, fine, you can have add-ons, such as for plays. But if you're going to award it a Nobel Prize for Literature, you have to analyze the words on the page. If it's going to a screenwriter... You can't praise the cinematography or the acting or the soundtrack. You have to reduce it to the words on the page and let them stand on their own and analyze that only. You can give screenwriters or directors other prizes, but not a prize for literature. That's cheating. That's the boundary he draws. It's not fair to the others. It's not fair to novelists, short story writers, practitioners of literature who use words only. And so, being as fair as possible to Bob Dylan, he printed out the lyrics, read them on the page, considered them as poetry, and said, you know what? It doesn't hold up. However it may come across in the song, it doesn't hold up on the page, and it's not fair to lifelong poets, people who don't have music, to go along with their words, who aren't singing in a studio or a concert hall, who are toiling away just trying to make words and words alone do things. It's not fair to them to fail to recognize that as words, their words are better than Dylan's, printed out on the page. That's Mike's argument. The other other argument, the flip side of this, is one that someone tweeted at me. Our episode posted, and the title was something like, Did Bob Dylan deserve the Nobel Prize? And the tweet came back, yes, because of the poetry. Well, look, that's fine, but that's not attacking Mike's argument, is it? 
Mike standing on the side watching that tweeter rip to shreds a pile of straw. Yes, because of the poetry. Well, sure. Poetry for a song. Mike printed them out and considered them as poetry on the page. That's the point. So, Mike's argument has some integrity to it, but to me it wasn't enough, because where I came down was this. I grew up, as most people my age did, in the rock and roll era. Rock and roll dominated us. It was not just the music we listened to, although it was that. And it wasn't just the soundtrack to our lives, although it was that too. It was an attitude, a way of life, a point of view. It was about youth culture and rebellion. And then it became the thing to rebel against. And it became the thing to protect encroachments on rock and roll by corporations, by the establishment, became something to lament. But there was a difference for me in what rock and roll heroes were doing and what they were up to. In the early days, say the 50s, maybe just playing rock and roll was enough. Maybe that brought in all that rebellion and artistry, just the music alone. Maybe that was the, the sole means of expression. Didn't matter what the words were. You were expressing freedom and excitement and joy. But by the end of the 60s, the music alone wasn't enough. You couldn't sing Bebop-a-Lula or Yakety Yak after Bob Dylan and be seen in the same category as Bob. Suddenly, Bob Dylan and the Beatles and Joni Mitchell and Carole King and all those singer-songwriters who came after were putting out truths. They were engaging people with their words. Their words were engaging people in a way that the 50s rock and roll singers hadn't been singing about blue suede shoes. You could see some roots in lyrics that mattered, in the blues, in folk, and so on. But something happened. Something had happened. And it was words that engaged me intellectually and emotionally, which felt like literature to me. Something literary about it. Words coming from one mind to my mind. The songwriters to mine, maybe with a boost from the music and the singer's performance and the recording. But if all that is done by the same person, then why isn't this literature? It feels like literature somehow. If it's not literature, what is it? Lyrics? But here's the thing, and I try to get at this with our guests. When they get here, you'll hear me fumble toward the fumble, stumble, whatever kind of bumbling, lots of grumble, whatever, whatever word is appropriate. Maybe not grumble. Stumbling, bumbling, and fumbling. How about that? Verbal fumbling. You'll see me try to ask this question of our guests, and I just don't quite get it out very clearly. So I should, uh, let me, uh, let me back up. Let me talk about them so you can see where they were coming from when they heard me try to ask this question. They were onto this idea of this middle ground, that there needs to be some, some space to explore this concept. There's literary power in what Bob Dylan and his ilk are doing. There's something that feels like literature in there. They were onto this idea even before Dylan won the Nobel Prize. They were thinking about it. This is an itch they've been trying to scratch. How do you talk about this phenomenon? How do you write about it? 
how do you acknowledge the literary value of the singer-songwriters of the 60s and beyond, as well as singer-songwriters who came before, how do you acknowledge the literary value of what those people did? How do you analyze the output? There wasn't a framework, a critical framework, a lexicon for doing so. We had poetry, but it wasn't poetry. We had lyrics, but that wasn't enough. We had songs, but that wasn't literature. And so these two came along. Mike is a singer, a songwriter, a Grammy Award winner himself, along with being a graduate of Harvard University and a music journalist and essayist. Ernest is a professor of English who works on Southern literature, poetry, and music. And they heard this debate in their minds and in their circles. It's not the same as poetry, but it's not exactly lyrics. There's something very close to literature here. It's cutting across literature's lawn, so to speak. So what do we do? Do we build a fence to keep it out? Or do we try to pull it in and then maybe build a fence around that? Or do we try to understand it better, give ourselves a way to talk about it, look at its past and future, and do justice to the complexity and the wonder of what happened? Because it is marvelous. I'm glad we're in a post-Dylan world instead of a, a Bebopalula world, a rock-around-the-clock world. So here's the part I bungled, bumbled, stumbled, fumbled. You'll hear it in the interview. I'll explain it for you now so it's at least clear to you as I grope toward it because I don't think I ever made it that clear to them. It's easy to take a few extremes before Dylan and after Dylan and say, well, this one is fluff and this one is worthy. I'll do it now. Here are the words to Bill Haley in the comments. There's smash hit rock around the clock. These are the lyrics. One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. Nine, ten, eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, rock. We're going to rock around the clock tonight. That's pretty much it. Put your glad rags on and join me, hun. We'll have some fun when the clock strikes one. We're going to rock around the clock tonight. We're going to rock, rock, rock till broad daylight. We're going to rock, going to rock around the clock tonight. Now, what literary qualities would you say that has? It's basic, right? It's not poetry. It's not high art. Maybe nursery rhyme. What does it express? Not much, right? Moon and June. That's where we are with this one. Maybe you could, you could really stretch and say, well, it's... It's joy, it's commitment to rock, it's, I don't know, persistence, <laughs> counting. <laughs> what does it have? It doesn't have much in terms of, of poetry. If you were a poet and you wrote that, you wouldn't expect to win the Nobel Prize. Let's put it that way. Now, you might hear the song in your mind as I'm reading it and think, yeah, but it's pure fun, it's pure joy, it's pure freedom. There's young love in there. There's excitement. Maybe for you, it's nostalgia. If you remember when the song came out or if you remember Happy Days, which used it as its theme. But no one is going to give those lines a prize for poetry, okay? It's not fair to poets to pretend that this is what they do. Right? They don't have music that they get to print in their book, that they get to 
you open the page and and joyous music comes out while you read. They they make words work. And you could look at a million songs like this. And the Beatles, their early songs are like this. They've said that. They said we weren't trying for anything profound with our lyrics in those early days. We were trying for sound. We wanted to get the song right, to get the feel of the song across. We would think about how the song should sound and find words that would just just not take away from that. Once in a while, they'd throw in a neat little twist because they were clever. They'd have a pun or something clever in there. Please, please me is a double entendre. They'd have early songs. They would always have a, something a little bit neat in there. She was just 17. You know what I mean. That's not dumb. It's not stupid. But they just mainly tried to avoid clunkers. They would take things out that that really made them groan or, or raise their eyebrows. But they weren't trying to be poets. They were trying to write hit songs, which was different before Dylan. Some of the songs are sort of nursery rhyme, like very simple, Love Me Do, their first hit. It's basically Moon and June. Here's the lyrics. Love, love me do. You know I love you. I'll always be true. So please, love me do. Right? That's not... That's... A third grader could write that. Right? If you ask a third grader to write a, a valentine to his true lover, to his mother. Right? Someone to love, somebody new, someone to love, someone like you. That's roses are red, violets are blue stuff. It's not Nobel Prize worthy. So it's easy to take that kind of a song and compare it with a song from, let's say, Help On. When we get into Norwegian Wood and In My Life and songs like that and say, okay, well, the Beatles, after Dylan opened that door, they became singer-songwriters. They were tackling problems of the world or their own personal problems. They were telling stories. They were insightful and introspective. Writing Nowhere Man. Songs like that. Just as Bob Dylan was way beyond rock around the clock with his lyrics, the late Beatles, we might think, were way beyond Love Me Do. Right? Songs like Across the Universe and Two of Us and Blackbird and Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields for No One. Eleanor Rigby, Let It Be. Could name a hundred songs, and they're all way beyond Moon and June, right? But here's the dilemma. And then I'll stop talking and let Mike and Ernest take over with how they solved the dilemma. Actually, we're going to hear Bob Dylan's Nobel Prize speech first because he talks about literature and music in it. Or actually, his banquet speech. That's what we'll do. We're going to save the Nobel Prize speech for next time. So the speech he gives at the banquet is a nice little appetizer for us today. Or the speech he asked the ambassador to give on his behalf at the banquet the night before the ceremony. That's what we hear today. Let me set out the dilemma. Love me do. Good example of lyrics without literary aspirations. But here's a late period song that I think does have literary aspirations, or at least that's how I hear it. Don't Let Me Down. This is one of my favorite Beatles songs, and my goodness, the Beatles were so good 
It wasn't even on an album, and it wasn't a single either. It was the B-side to Get Back. It's a song that holds up 50 years later, and it was a B-side. That's the Beatles. They're like kings who rode through town in a carriage filled with gold coins. There's more treasure spilling out of the out of the out of the bumps in the road they hit than most bands are able to come up with after 10 years toiling away in the mines. Don't let me down is powerful. It's moving. I never fail to be moved by it, by its meaning and its words, the expression of it. And yet, if we print out the words and look at them on the page, this is what they are. Ready? Don't let me down. Don't let me down. Don't let me down. Don't let me down. Nobody ever loved me like she does. Oh, she does. Yes, she does. And if somebody loved me like she do, oh, she do me. Yes, she does. Right? That's, you wouldn't put that up for a prize. And yet it's like the most powerful words I know. So what, what, what does that mean for us? I'm hearing it like I hear poetry. Or I'm hearing it like I feel when I read poetry. Those words are going straight to my heart. Why? What do we do with that? I'm in love for the first time. Don't you know it's going to last? It's a love that lasts forever. It's a love that had no past. Don't let me down. 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 That's not a poem. The tweeter who says, yes, Bob Dylan, he deserved the Nobel Prize because of the poetry. Well, he he wasn't really writing poetry. It was poetic, not poetry. That's it for those lyrics. I gave you just about every lyric in that song. It's not really all that different from Love Me Do. If you just read those lyrics, and that's the end of the Beatles. That's when they're in full singer-songwriter mode. That's John Lennon. If you just read those lyrics on the page, you wouldn't say, this is a soul searching. This is a, a truly vulnerable person in agony, pleading with you. Now, a lot of this is because we know John Lennon. We know his story. We know he was in love with Yoko. We know he was in pain and scared and all of that. So maybe... If you read it on the page and you happen to know a lot about the poet, as we often do, and you supply biographical details to something, maybe that gives you, that's the authenticity question, maybe that then gives you, makes it, gives it a little boost, which would be fair if we're trying to compare poems with lyrics to say, well, it's because we know all about the singer, we know all about Billie Holiday and what she went through. That's why this, the songs have so much power for us. Well, that's fair then to say that, well, we know a lot about Keats too. We know he was dying. And so we supply that when we read. Okay, that's fair. But there's more, even if you know the poet's story. Mike would probably say that shouldn't really be part of the, anal- the analysis. Anyway, Mike Palindrome. Even if you know the poet's story, you should focus on the words on the page, 
Even if you know the poet's story, it isn't as moving as the song is when I hear it. And the words on the page, the line, don't let me down, is repeated 21 times. Creative writing professor would take that poem from the student and say, look, simply repeating yourself over and over isn't going to make your point. You're going to start detracting from your point, the law of diminishing returns. And yet, if you hear the song, it's mesmerizing. Why? Is it the music? Is it the performance and the delivery? Is it Paul's harmonies? Topping it off, as always, as he sends his mate on his journey. You were mine, John, and now you're hers, and that's going to be okay. I'm still going to be here. I'm singing. I'm telling you it's okay. Why does this song move me like literature moves me and love me do doesn't? Why do I snicker when Sammy Hagar sings at me? How do I know when it's love? I can't tell you, but it lasts forever. <laughs> That's his lyric. How This is in Van Halen, right? Van Hagar. How does it feel when it's love? It's just something you feel together. Two rhetorical questions and two awful answers supplied. And I snicker and say, Sammy, are those the laziest lyrics ever? Two questions for you that I'm asking. Or actually, you raised them. You gave me the two questions that you were going to answer for me. And then that's the best you could do. It's like a, a teacher has let the student design the test and then take the test that the student himself has designed and the student just writes a question mark in the blanks. Like, what? Huh? How should I know? <laughs> right? Like a <laughs> history. Take a, the history teacher says, write your own test, class. We've been talking about American history for a whole year. Write two questions and answer them. And the student writes down, who was the first president? And what year did the Civil War begin? And then answers, uh, who cares? And how should I know? How do I know when it's love? I can't tell you, but it lasts forever. How does it feel when it's love? It's just something you feel together. <laughs> Those aren't answers, Sammy. They're not answers at all. I still like the song, but I'm not immersed in, in the discussion of love. Van Halen is talking through Eddie's guitar, as always not through the content of what Sammy Hagar is singing. Why do I snicker at that? But I don't snicker when John Lennon repeats, don't let me down 21 times. I'm captivated. I have a lump in my throat, clear eyes, and a full heart hoping not to lose. So that's our question for the day. We'll take a quick break, and we're going to listen to Bob Dylan and his banquet prize Bang, keep messing this up. There are two Bob Dylan Nobel speeches. One is his Nobel Prize lecture. That's the main course. We're going to save that. There's also an appetizer, which is a speech he asked the ambassador to Sweden, Azita Raji, to deliver on his behalf. That's the one we'll do today. We're going to hear the official lecture in our next episode because it is all about literature, and I think it'll be beneficial for us to hear just what Bob Dylan thinks about literature and how it plays in his songs. So we will have the banquet speech and then 
we will hear from our guests, Mike Madison and Ernest Suarez. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Hello, everyone. This is Jack here to tell you about a way to eat better and easier. That's right, Factor and their delicious ready-to-eat meals. These things are amazing, chef-crafted, always fresh, never frozen. All you do is heat them up and you're ready to go. No prepping, cooking, or cleanup, and you get something healthy, nutritious, and tasty. I love Factor meals, especially on those days when I'm in the office. They're better for me than snacks or junk food, and much cheaper and faster than buying my lunch at a restaurant. You can choose options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, keto, and you can change your schedule to get as much or as little as you need every week, whatever suits you and your family best. Head to factormeals.com literature50 and use code literature50 to get 50% off. That's code literature50 at factormeals.com literature50 to get 50% off. Bob Dylan's speech at the Nobel banquet in the Stockholm City Hall on December 10th, 2016. Good evening, everyone. I extend my warmest greetings to the members of the Swedish Academy and to all of the other distinguished guests in attendance tonight. I'm sorry I can't be with you in person, but please know that I am most definitely with you in spirit and honored to be receiving such a prestigious prize. Being awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature is something I never could have imagined or seen coming. From an early age, I've been familiar with and reading and absorbing the works of those who were deemed worthy of such a distinction. Kipling, Shaw, Thomas Mann, Pearl Buck, Camus, Hemingway. These giants of literature, whose works are taught in the schoolroom, housed in libraries around the world, and spoken of in reverent tones, have always made a deep impression. That I now join the names on such a list is truly beyond words. I don't know if these men and women ever thought of the Nobel honor for themselves, but I suppose that anyone writing a book or a poem or a play anywhere in the world might harbor that secret dream deep down inside. It's probably buried so deep that they don't even know it's there. 
If someone had ever told me that I had the slightest chance of winning the Nobel Prize, I would have to think that I'd have about the same odds as standing on the moon. In fact, during the year I was born and for a few years after, there wasn't anyone in the world who was considered good enough to win this Nobel Prize. So I recognize that I am in very rare company, to say the least. I was out on the road when I received this surprising news, and it took me more than a few minutes to properly process it. I began to think about William Shakespeare, the great literary figure. I would reckon he thought of himself as a dramatist. The thought that he was writing literature couldn't have entered his head. His words were written for the stage, meant to be spoken, not read. When he was writing Hamlet, I'm sure he was thinking about a lot of different things. Who are the right actors for these roles? How should this be staged? Do I really want to set this in Denmark? His creative vision and ambitions were no doubt at the forefront of his mind, but there were also more mundane matters to consider and deal with. Is the financing in place? Are there enough good seats for my patrons? Where am I going to get a human skull? I would bet that the farthest thing from Shakespeare's mind was the question, is this literature? When I started writing songs as a teenager, and even as I started to achieve some renown for my abilities, my aspirations for these songs only went so far. I thought they could be heard in coffee houses or bars, maybe later in places like Carnegie Hall, the London Palladium. If I was really dreaming big, maybe I could imagine getting to make a record and then hearing my songs on the radio. That was really the big prize in my mind. Making records and hearing your songs on the radio meant that you were reaching a big audience and that you might get to keep doing what you had set out to do. Well, I've been doing what I set out to do for a long time now. I've made dozens of records and played thousands of concerts all around the world. But it's my songs that are at the vital center of almost everything I do. They seem to have found a place in the lives of many people throughout many different cultures, and I'm grateful for that. But there's one thing I must say. As a performer, I've played for 50,000 people, and I've played for 50 people, and I can tell you that it is harder to play for 50 people. 50,000 people have a singular persona. Not so with 50. Each person has an individual, separate identity, a world unto themselves. They can perceive things more clearly. Your honesty and how it relates to the depth of your talent is tried. The fact that the Nobel Committee is so small is not lost on me. But, like Shakespeare, I too am often occupied with the pursuit of my creative endeavors in dealing with all aspects of life's mundane matters. Who are the best musicians for these songs? Am I recording in the right studio? Is this song in the right key? Some things never change, even in 400 years. Not once have I ever had the time to ask myself, are my songs literature? So, I do thank the Swedish Academy, both for taking the time to consider that very question and ultimately for providing such a wonderful answer. My best wishes to you all.
Bob Dylan. Okay, joining me now are today's guests, Mike Madison and Ernest Suarez. Mike Madison is a singer and songwriter who has won two Grammy Awards and eight Blues Music Awards. Ernest Suarez is a professor of English at Catholic University in Washington, D.C., who has published widely on Southern literature, poetry, and music. Mike Madison and Ernest Suarez, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you. Thank you. So let's start with the title of your book, Poetic Song Verse. How do we define this new genre? Well, we, we might start by distinguishing between poetic song verse and, and poetry. Yeah. Our assumption is that song lyrics can be poetic and that poetry can be musical, but that songs and poems, they're different things. Mm-hmm. And one form doesn't need to be justified uh, by the other. What we call poetic song verse consists of lyrics that have literary intent and that consciously strive for aesthetic impact. Poetic song verse really centers on the symbiotic relationship that occurs when potent lyrics and sonics, and by sonics we mean instrumentation, production, voice, every oral element of song, when those things are developed together. Mm. In poetic song verse, sonics combine with verbal techniques associated with poetry that we all know, imagery, line breaks, wordplay, character story, to really create an emotionally and semantically textured dynamic. Okay. I I don't mean to interrupt you there, but that does raise a couple of points that I wanted to clarify. And so let me just sort of put it this way. I, I was thinking about a song like Around the Clock, you know, one, two, three o'clock, four o'clock a rock. And the lyrics there just seemed to me kind of like filler. And what I was wondering is if you would consider that poetic song verse that just isn't very deep, or if you would not consider it poetic song verse at all. It sounds like intent matters, so you would maybe consider a song like that if it was just to to kind of provide some words to go along with a beat and a melody. You would consider that not to be in the category of what you're talking about. Yes, Bill Haley and the Comets, Rock Around the Clock, would not be poetic song verse. But it is a terrific song for what it was intended for in right. the mid-late late 50s, which is uh, getting teenagers to dance. Yeah. And so part of what we're talking about in the book is this idea of poetic song verse begins to develop after the initial wave of, of rock and roll arrives. Mm. And it's something that really starts to happen in the early mid-60s, especially centering around Bob Dylan. Mm. Right. And taking this genre that is making such an impact in American culture and worldwide culture and trying to instill a poetic seriousness into it. And there are many reasons for that. But if you tend to go back before 1960, you're not going to find a lot of poetic songbirds. You may find songs that are really evocative and, and poetic seeming, especially an American popular song and stuff that's coming out of musicals and things like that. But generally rock and roll in its infancy was really, um, Super fun, but pretty trite uh, lyrically. Yeah, I had heard, uh, I'm a huge Beatles fan, and and I know that the Beatles, obviously, they had that moment where they started listening to Bob Dylan and they started thinking, we can do a lot more with our lyrics. But I've heard them say that when they were first writing songs, they were just trying to get the sound. They were just 
the lyrics didn't matter so much to them. They were trying to get the right feel and the right sound. And if you look at this, this is going to help us define poetic song verse, I think, because if you look at a song like Love Me Do, when they were in that mode of let's just, you know, maybe we don't want to embarrass ourselves with any clunkers in the lyrics, but we we don't mind having a kind of moon and June lyrics that, that don't go very deep. Compared with a song like Don't Let Me Down, from their later period, the lyrics aren't actually all that different, but the way that they're sung and the meaning that John Lennon puts behind the performance, it's obviously that he's doing something much more artistic, much more literary, we might say. It seems like that would definitely qualify as poetic song verse, whereas the earlier song with this sort of hand claps and and it comes, it's a lot closer to the music of the 50s, that maybe wouldn't qualify. So what is it about, you mentioned the sonics and the production, but what do you include in your analysis of poetic song verse that helps you determine its literary qualities? Well, one thing that I would just add is that we look at the moment when poetry and blues-based popular music, rock and so on, come into contact with each other. Mm, In, In the coffeehouse culture, and other places where right. people are playing music and reading poems almost as if they're the same thing. Yeah. And that dynamic is the thing that starts getting into Dylan's uh, music. Even more than folk music, it's the the sort of beat poetry and the the spoken word, I guess it was happening in Greenwich Village. Yeah, yeah very much so. Very mm. much so. And it really changes uh, the way that songs are written. Both the blues and the contemporary poetry, like the the beat poetry that you mentioned, are based on the human voice rather than on Western harmonics or uh, traditional metrics. And it's that similarity that allowed the two forms to, to merge. Right. I wonder if we could go back a little bit. I know it's tempting to just... Basically, we could just look at Bob Dylan and say what influences fed into this. But I was wondering if we could go back even earlier so we can get a sense of the blues and the way it developed. You talk in your book about W.C. Handy. Who was Handy and how did he change music? I mean, what, who W.C. Handy was, he was a musician, conductor, and uh, the first person to publish uh, the blues as sheet music. Mm. He helped turn the blues into a national and international phenomenon during the first few decades of the 20th century. Now, he, quote, unquote, 1903, discovers the blues, which, of course, existed already because they were there to be discovered when he and his bands were touring Mississippi. And he was at a train station and heard a man singing what Handy described as the strangest music he'd ever (laughs) heard. Right. What he had heard was the Delta Blues, the music that would eventually become the cornerstone of American rock and roll and other blues-based musical forms. And why did that music sound weird to him? I know there's, it's guitar-based, is it bended notes or what? I've seen it where they used to drag a knife along the strings or do we know why he thought that it was so unusual? Well, you you know, what I imagine he was hearing are the elements of what we'd call the 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 deep blues that Robert Palmer defined in, in his kind of seminal book, which was always kind of on the peripheral of American popular music and Western music, but um, never was really kind of heard in its pure form. Mm. And what we 
say it kind of defines the blues are this insistent beat, something that that keeps coming at you. Mm. The blue notes, which are the notes that fall between notes on the traditional Western scale, what we might call half or quarter tones, but are usually created by bending up or down. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we all know this now because we've all been listening to the rock and roll and the blues for, you know, decades, yeah. but, but yeah. He, he didn't quite get that. Uh, there's also the blues form, which is basically a call and response. It's a AAB, we call it. You make a statement. It's three o'clock in the morning. I can't close my eyes. You restate that statement A. It's three o'clock in the morning. I can't close my eyes. And then B, I'm wild about you, baby, and I can't be satisfied. And so it's almost integrating the call and response of what we used to call what we would call field haulers or things like that into one person Mm. creating that in the blues form. And finally, the last thing we use to define blues is what we call authenticity of of feeling, meaning that the blues between the performer and the audience, there's this safe space where you can say anything you want. You can talk about what most people don't talk about, how miserable and sad they are, how extremely radically happy they are. The fact that when they think about their spouse, they want to murder them and cut them in half with a shotgun. You can say anything yeah. <laughs> as, as, as long as you really, really mean it. And it's up to the performer and the audience to decide if that authenticity is taking hold or not. But that's the idea is that you create this, I guess we, we use the word occasionally sacred space where anything is allowed. And so those four elements kind of come together to create what we consider to be the blues. Yeah. We're kind of skipping ahead to something that I really wanted to ask you about, but I'll just ask it now since you brought it up. The authenticity, that's the area that I'm trying to untangle in my mind when it comes to poetic song verse. If we can analyze it objectively, or if it's inextricable from our knowledge of who the, the speaker or the singer is... And I was thinking, you know, when when you write that story about W.C. Handy in the first one where the guy, the guy who's he's singing about where he's going to go later that day. And I know it, it sounds like it's very simple, but I, I could imagine it being very powerful and moving to hear him talk about something with such immediacy, especially if you feel like he's maybe kind of a survivor or he's, you know, that he's living moment to moment and maybe he's known a lot of hardships in his life or or maybe, you know, making it to lunch that day is is not necessarily a given or maybe it's something he's grateful for. Or, you know, you could imagine a speaker kind of giving you that feeling that you might have that what you're hearing is something very genuine and very moving and very powerful, whereas we probably wouldn't think that if we were listening to you know, some millionaire rock star talking about what he's planning to have for lunch that day. Well, you you mentioned feeling. And when we speak of something like authenticity, there's no one way to define it. But because the blues involve the full range of human experience, as Mike was saying, Mm. love, lust, anger, whatever it may be, it expresses contradictory thoughts and emotions and different ironies and paradox that reflect what it means to be human. Mm. And that's how it connects to people. And that's how poetic song verse connects to people. That sense of authenticity that Dylan and other 60s songwriters experienced when listening or playing the blues really played a major, major role in the development of poetic song verse. Mm. 
Okay, so they heard it and they thought it doesn't matter if this is complex or simple. It doesn't matter if the lyrics are, you know, full of clever turns of phrase or or exotic imagery or anything that we might kind of look for if we were analyzing poetry. They just looked at this is coming from the heart, so to speak. And I'd say, too, that, you know, with poetry, too, there are very simple poems that yeah. are immensely powerful. There right. are uh, very simple paintings that are uh, immensely powerful. It's something that in many ways is undefinable, but that we connect to it. And certainly to this music, tens and tens of millions of people around the globe have connected to it. Mm, right. And I, I might add, too, and we write about this in the book, part of the strategy of, of the blues performer is whether he's improvising or not, is talking about not just the internal and not just the emotional, but also the immediate and the local. Yeah. Um, you're looking around you and saying, this is what's happening today. This is what I see out my window. This is the weather event that happened, you know, this flood or something like that. Yeah. And I think that's that's a strategy that poetry and, and poets and poems have, have, have used for centuries too, is using the immediate detail to convey something of what you're you're really trying to convey. Yeah. So how did the early blues develop this? They weren't setting out to try to be artistic, but they were trying to communicate with people that they live nearby or people in the next town over, or what do we know about what they were trying to do with their lyrics and their music? I think first and foremost is, is have fun. Yeah. And part of that insistent, beat that we talk about is is that it, it's inviting and it's participatory. Um, whether you're sitting around catching the beat together and clapping hands or stomping your feet or nodding your head, it inevitably probably leads to dancing. If the beat is insistent, everybody can understand that it's going to continue that way. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's not and and so you're immediately part of the conversation. But I think what happened you know, after, after people are in and they're brought together, the interesting thing about the blues is that it opens up and it can be deadly serious or it can just be extremely lighthearted. Mm. It's especially if you're living a life that's pretty hard, I would imagine, if you're living in the Delta as a black person at the turn of the 20th century. You're looking for ways to emotionally expiate. Mm. <laughs> and the best way to do that is is in a community. And it's fun and absolutely necessary and desirable to do that in a church setting, but it's also probably more fun and more effective if you're doing it late at night with a lot of liquor and great music. <laughs> <laughs> the secular version of the uh, worship service. It, it kind of is, yeah. Yeah. And so much of the same phenomenon then happened in the, the poetry world. Hmm. After the Second World War, in the clubs, in the coffee houses, where people were there to enjoy themselves and express themselves, and the poetry developed in a way, changed in a way, I should say, that it took on many of the characteristics that were already embedded in the blues. I don't think the poets planned it that way necessarily. But it happened. And when the two things were set side by side, all of a sudden, a new form of song was made possible. And what were those poets responding to? I, I don't think of them as having quite the same 
difficulty in their lives that the African-Americans had in the post-slavery years, the turn of the century. But was it a, a response to um, the threat of nuclear war or, or the post-World War II environment or, or just feeling left out of the Eisenhower uh, boom years that was infecting the rest of America and that they maybe felt like was, was artificial to them? Or do you feel like it was coming from a place of pain or were they coming at this from a different angle? I think that World War II and uh, atomic bomb, hydrogen bomb, and so on had a huge uh, influence mm. that people didn't know how long they were going to be around. Yeah. And they were looking for other ways to express themselves. Also, McCarthyism yeah. is in the, the culture. Beat, a lot of people hear the word beat and think of, you know, beat like a musical beat. But the Beats called themselves Beats because they felt beaten down. Right. And probably a lot of groups, homosexuals or other groups that felt like they had been marginalized or they had been, uh, you know, that they were subject to prejudice or, or things like that, probably felt like they had to categorize themselves as outsiders. Uh, absolutely. And there's a reason why that culture leads to the counterculture. Mm, yeah. They're people living outside the mainstream culture. They were looking for something uh, more. Right. So you talk about Chuck Berry, but we kind of it kind of left me to wonder why we didn't have Dylan-esque uh, songwriters who were setting out to do that in 1930 or 1940 or 1950. And I'm wondering if it's if it's the industry didn't want to hear that kind of lyric, or if it's, would you say that poetry had not yet had time to absorb itself into the generation? Is it just a different generation? Or why don't we have a Bob Dylan from 1935, let's say? Well, I, I don't know if it really occurred to anybody. Mm. I think what part of what made Bob Dylan possible was that there seemed to be a potential audience for this bold music he was creating and positing. And I don't think he sat, you know, in his garret and said, I'm going to be a, you know, poetic song verse artist. Right, right. <laughs> but 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 I, I think he just followed his muse and his interests. And, and, and it seemed like at that point in the culture, there was an audience that would respond to this. Hmm. I, again, going back to a lot of the popular song from from musicals and Tin Pan Alley, there's a lot of really, really clever, interesting wordplay uh, in songs that would go on to become what we call jazz standards. Right same, right. same thing in a lot of the more commercial blues that were written, especially with 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 the female singers from the from the 20s and Bessie Smith and, and so on. And and even going, you know, who they call the poet laureate of the blues, Percy Mayfield, hmm. who wrote. Some of my favorite songs, of course, are not coming to my mind right now. But I mean, there, there are people who walked the line and wrote things that were quite poetical seeming. But in terms of making that the focus of your artistry and and, and making a career out of it and, and thinking that there is an audience for you, I don't think that really happened until the 60s. And, and I don't think it really happened until Dylan. Yeah. Dylan, all the way up to the point that he writes like a Rolling Stone, mm -hmm. is not sure if he wants to be a poet, a novelist, or a songwriter. When he writes that song, he says, then I found something that satisfied me mm. in those ways. And I think a major reason that we don't have it before that 
point is that the poetry had not evolved. Yeah. And it was not there as a source for those songwriters to, to draw on. Right. The part part where Dylan is getting a lot of his blues knowledge, I think, is from a, what we call the folk music scene, which kind of encompassed, I, I don't know what you'd call it. it it's almost like outsider art in a way mm. and the rural blues the country blues were very welcome in, the, in that scene there's the famous anthology of american folk music by harry smith that was put together as if it was a, a work of musicology but it really wasn't it was just this guy harry smith who collected all of these old 78s and uh just picked his favorites because they were so idiosyncratic and didn't really follow any formula, like a Tin Pen Alley thing. And they were almost blues-like in their free association and, and bizarre imagery. And so if you're coming, like Dylan was, from a, from a folk setting, this you're getting all of that, too. And, and that's informing you. Right. Bob Dylan kind of, he kind of raises this question himself when he invented so much about his own life story. Do you think think that there is a feeling among him or or people like him that they need to have a kind of authenticity based on their background in order to be taken seriously as someone who can sing with feeling and and talk about the problems of the world i think that that's definitely an impulse especially for bob dylan that he, he would make up these stories about himself that he would he hit the road and was traveling with Mance Lipscomb, who was a real Texas uh, blues man from Navasota. But a lot of what Dylan said was bullshit. And and I think what people on the folk scene understood was, yeah, it was bullshit. Yeah. How, how, how this guy, you would have have to have lived 18 lives to <laughs> those stories to add up. <laughs> but I think, I think what people understood too is he's bringing this sense of artistry and imagination to it. And it, I think it bothered some people who are folk purists who, in retrospect, may have had kind of a sentimental attachment to the music that they loved so much. Mm. Whereas I think Dylan saw there was a potential here. There's this gold mine of material. If, if you if you don't follow the rules and you decide not to be a, uh, you know, by the book folk person, there's so much material to mine and, and so many places this raw material could go. I'm going to be an artiste, you know, I'm just going to skip all the rules and all the orthodoxies and, and do whatever I want. And I, I think that's really when we begin to see what we come to call poetic song verse emerging. Yeah, that is kind of what I come to as the goal or the usefulness of this is that it let the artist be more free, that someone like Dylan could say, I can express myself in the way that I want. I can say what I need to say and, and say it the, the way I want to say it. And there isn't going to be a sort of artificial rule or, or uh, either the, the industry is going to tell me that listeners won't get it or, or the audience mm -hmm. will object or whatever the problem might be, but that he's going to have a kind of freedom. And we see that after Dylan in a way that we maybe don't see it before. And we see that artists, the invented persona to speak through. Mm. An invented character to speak through. As we've said, uh, as Mike was alluding to, Dylan invents a self for him uh, that, that he that's going to contain his voice. We see that with Jim Morrison. Mm. We see that with the Beatles. We see that with the Rolling Stones. And that can be 
very uh, liberating. Yeah. It can open things up. I want to present this personality, this voice that will let me say what I want to say. Yeah. And it can work against you, I would think. Possibly, you know, what works, works. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and and it, it goes, to, you know, even Chuck Berry, he was 30 years old when he was uh, singing songs from the perspective of a teenager and coding his lyrics in different uh, ways. Yeah. And I think he has a huge influence on Dylan and others in those particular ways. Yeah. I guess I was thinking of the way characters might end up boxing you in or or tying you to a certain kind of speech. And, and what I was really thinking of, actually, this is sort of an analogy, but it's stand-up comics and how Richard Pryor and George Carlin started out in this with these very safe persona doing traditional jokes. And then as they started to open up kind of around the same time, actually the sixties and, and early seventies, and they, they ended up finding a, a way that would let them say what they wanted. On the other hand, there's someone like a Bobcat Goldthwaite who finds his stand up voice. That's very successful, but he, he feels like he gets locked into this sort of persona that doesn't let him end up growing the way he wants to grow. And I, I would imagine that there are musicians who kind of do the same thing. They sing in a certain voice and then maybe they get swept away with that and, and they become famous as that. But then when they try to break out of that, it's harder for them to reach their audience. Yeah. And, and I think that says something about the artistry of Bob Dylan is that he, he moved, he moved, he started in this kind of typical folk manner. And then he started writing really beautiful, evocative protest scening songs, but they were more than that, you know, mm -hmm. blown in the wind. And, yeah. you know, every, every, every person on earth is, is, is covering Bob Dylan songs. And as he's going along, he's like, I'm being more and more jammed up into this world and being defined by the industry and audiences in a way I don't want. And, and he finally moves towards doing the ultimate sin in, in the folk world and is just playing straight rock and roll. Uh, when he's when he breaks out like a Rolling Stone and, you know, the, the famous event at the Newport Folk Festival where apparently, you know, Pete Seeger has an axe and is trying yeah. to, you know, chop the, <laughs> you know, whether that's a or board, not. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think I think Dylan really early on learned that, you know, this is you, you shed you shed your persona like you like you peel through the layers of the onion. You you can just keep going and and you can look at. Dylan's career too, and see a lot of the persona that did not take. You know, mm, yeah. not not that it wasn't great, but he was too far ahead of his audience when he went and did Nashville Skyline. He's like, I'm going to sing like kind of I think I really do sing, and it was like this is awful. Yeah, <laughs> but I think he was an early uh, adapter for that. Of oh, I can just keep shedding these masks, and he did. And and you know, there's a, we have a quote in our book, or Joni. Mitchell, who I think this is from the 90s, she's still mad. And she's saying everything about Bob is fake from his voice to his name to, you know, and, and I think I think Bob Dylan would have had a laugh reading that because he's like, you're 100 percent right. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it, it got it got me where I needed to go with with my artistry. Yeah. Did we go through a golden age of singer songwriters or are musicians and songwriters free today? is did Dylan change everything and now people it's accepted that you can have the intention of of having artistic lyrics and artistic intent or would you say that there was a moment where it was much more accepted than it might be today I mean I would say that what we had was a moment in which this type of songwriting 
was more abundant in the culture. Mm. And some of these songs that we've been discussing on top 40. Yeah, right. They were all over FM radio. I think that there are still great songwriters writing poetic song verse today. And we discussed them in the book. But I think people listen to music differently. And I think that the popular music or the most popular music of the time often doesn't incline towards poetic song verse. Mm. But there are still plenty of good examples, but it, it might not be maybe as as sought out by the audience as it was in, say, 1970 or 1972. I, I think that's true. And, and I think they're kind of, I, I think poetic song verses kind of clung to to strains of music, just as music is kind of stratified, especially over the last 30 years, you know, when, when we're talking about something like Americana, I think there's a lot of poetic song verse in that genre for whatever's left of rock <laughs> in different strains of, of, of rap and hip hop. There's different intentions and poetic song verse can, can be really strong there too. But like Ernest says, I think in general, in terms of just uh, as as music being taken in by a population, I think poetic song verses has definitely diminished. Mm. Uh, we, we do have people, for instance, uh, Lucinda Williams, yeah, Steve Earle, our our good friend Luther Dickinson, and others who are just fantastic uh, songwriters, very much in this mode. Yeah, right. Or as my son, who is applying for colleges, just had to write a college application essay, and he reached for a lyric by Kendrick Lamar. Mm-hmm. Kendrick Lamar, terrific. Yeah, yeah. which uh, made me feel like, okay, you know, me blaming my parents for being in their 20s during the 60s and completely missing the Beatles altogether, I felt like, uh, well, you know, maybe I need to start listening to some Kendrick Lamar or I'm going to be guilty of doing the same thing they did. So is your book, I found it very readable. I also felt like it could be something that music critics and journalists might enjoy and, and benefit from. Are you thinking that it will help people understand music better or people who are curious about the history or is it for a general audience or for are are you aiming it at music insiders Hmm. i think the intended i mean it's interesting we we originally wrote the book as kind of a more popular history but it kind of morphed into something slightly more academic but but i think it's it's relatable to anybody who's who's curious about the history of of american music and uh, where it's come from and, and where it's going we tried to keep it you know, one toe in the academy and, and one toe in kind of anecdotal real world, um, and, and we'll and we'll see if if that appeals to people or not. I I, I think I think it it walks a nice kind of middle path. Yeah, you know, we have we both have so many friends who are musicians and poets, as well as a healthy handful of people who work in both forms, and and they've uh, embraced it. But we really also wanted to write for a popular audience, a general readership that was looking uh, for ways to approach the music uh, they loved with greater attentiveness. We wanted it to be sophisticated, historically accurate, aesthetically centered, but also readable, lively, because what we wanted to explain or to 
find out about is how this form of music that we loved came into existence. When Dylan won the Nobel Prize in 2016, Mike and I were already writing this book, mm. and his Nobel Prize affirmed what we already knew, that song, verse could be a form of, of literature. It's yeah. changed who we are personally. Yeah. Yeah. And Dylan, in his speech, he he talked about Homer and kind of the oral tradition rising through the mists of time and, and speaking through a figure like Homer. And I felt like, although I, I appreciated the analogy, I what I found exciting about your book is to think of the tradition as coming out of the blues, which also has a kind of... Um, uh, kind of a mysterious origin, kind of rising up from the people, but it's not so long ago that we can't imagine our way into it or we can't learn more about it or explore it further. And I really appreciated that you started with those early blues uh, singers and, and lyrics and, and musicians because it just seems like such a fascinating thing to have where we can look at such an important genre of music and an influential genre of music and we almost take it for granted now but it has such a uh, such a fascinating history yeah yeah and i it, just going back a couple steps too i just wanted to mention that I, what i really enjoyed about beginning this conversation with ernest probably eight or nine years ago was uh, as a musician and a songwriter um but also formerly a kind of accidental journalist who, who did a lot of music reviewing of live concerts and albums and things like that is it got to the point and this is probably in the mid 90s where i was doing a lot of reviews and reading a lot of reviews and i and i just i i started to realize i don't know what our criteria is yeah. <laughs> our criteria for the things we're writing about is just what happened three months ago and and i had always hoped i could hit upon some sort of through line where as a writer i could be a little more informative and informed about what I was really trying to say, except that something is cool or it's not. <laughs> so just beginning this from, from that very simple idea, starting this conversation with, with Ernest is, uh, has been quite a journey for me. Oh. Well, I feel like we should wrap up, but I forgot to ask one question that I really wanted to ask. And that is about production, because it would seem like from everything we've talked about, authenticity and, and hearing the artist's voice and the artist's freedom of expression, that the, um, you know, things in the studio would interfere with that auto-tune or, but even just other, you know, delayed vocals or compression or anything like that would seem like it would disrupt our ability to hear the authentic voice of the singer-songwriter. On the other hand... It seems like poetic song verse is broad enough to include certain types of production or, or would recognize that that might be important to how uh, the song is communicated and how it's experienced. Do you include recording and, and production of songs in your analysis of poetic song verse, or does that have to kind of sit on the side? No, early in the book, we even mentioned this idea of production and, and understanding that a lot of people won't really understand you know the technical techniques that might go into it, but just using your ears as as uh, as the average listener, you can you can make judgments or, or or you can certainly describe production. We talk about Bob Dylan, his his recording of a Blown in the Wind, I think it is, and uh, it's very obviously just him and a guitar mm. in in a studio. There's no live audience. There are things you can discern, you know, mm -hmm. and that decision 
definitely makes the whole experience as a listener much more intimate. You're definitely much more focused on the words and the voice and the guitar is just kind of the accompaniment. And, and that's a production choice. We put that up against, say, Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run, which could have been just recorded with him and a guitar, and it may have when he was demoing it, as it were. But, um, you know, it took him years to finish that production, and it has this cinematic sweep to it with horns. It yeah. ends up with, with glockenspiel, like there's this whole yeah. <laughs> high school marching band thing. Strings come in at the end, and it, and it takes you on. It's, it's almost like this technicolor cinematic journey, and that was very intentional. Yeah. And the effect of it on you, whether whether you can break out down all those elements or not, you can definitely feel it and hear it. And so we're encouraging people to, to listen really closely and to go back and re-listen and say, like, what are you hearing? How, how are you hearing that? That's a way you can begin to understand your understanding of, of production and how that may help or, or even hinder songs. Because, you know, in the 60s, there were a lot of techniques that came in, with, whether it's back masking and rolling tape backwards or effects and things like that, which on Sgt. Pepper's and some records are really effective and, and, and mind bending. But as it continues, even those become cliches. And, and they kind of box in music uh, into its own small little psychedelic corner. And so we, we do talk a lot about production and, and how one might approach understanding what's, what they're hearing. Right. And it seems to sort of be a, a really good way of, of drawing these lines and saying, this is why when we're assessing the literary qualities of, let's say, a Bob Dylan, we don't just print out his lyrics and read them side by side with poetry that was written by a poet for the page, that you have to include the way that this song is going to make you feel, even if it feels like, well, this is giving these uh, <laughs> singer-songwriters a lot of extra tools. Uh, it is something that is important to understand why a song might be able to make you cry, even if you read the lyrics on a page and found them to be cliched or or not that interesting. The, the lyrics and the other components of the song are inseparable. Yeah. Right. In poetic song verse, what all of these other elements do is enhance the way we experience uh, the lyrics. They provide the lyrics with more texture, with more dimensions. Mm. Okay. Well, the book is called Poetic Song Verse, Blues-Based Popular Music and Poetry. The authors are Mike Madison and Ernest Suarez. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Jack. Okay, there we go. My thanks to Mike Madison and Ernest Suarez. Do check out their book, Poetic Songverse. It's a great gift for all who like rock and roll and or the blues and or Bob Dylan and or music criticism and or music. That's a big tent. Come on, <laughs> buy it. <laughs> You'll like it. It's a neat little book. Very readable, but also very rich. So it's perfect for you or for all those Holiday gift recipients in your life. The dad book. Let's let's be honest. Oh. <laughs> good book for dads. Good book for everyone. My thanks also to John Lennon and Bill Haley and Sammy Hagar and Bob Dylan and all those others we quoted earlier and all who have tried to make sense of the world and make it a better place through their music and who have made my life a better place 
Where was I headed with that? Have made my my life a better place. Speaking of bad poetry. <laughs> <I'm sorry. coughs> Excuse me. Have made my life's world a better world for my life. Have made my place in life a better place. I don't know. Have made my life better. How about that? You see, people? Simplify, simplify, simplify. Sometimes it's better to reduce. I'll try it now with our closing, our close off. I'm Jack. Thanks. See you. Period.